God is good. And all the time. Yeah, <laughs> you can add to it, that's fine. Um, it's sort of like a Christian mantra, depending on where you grew up and things like that. Um, and I remember... Test one, two. Can you still hear me? Okay. Lord, help that stay like that. Um, when I was here, I remember, I'm about to just sit this one here, to be honest with you. I'm not above it. One, two. All right. Okay. Um, what was I saying? When I was younger, that phrase uh, just seemed like a Christian mantra uh, that Christians repeat. Um, and now as a believer, um, it's quite profound, the statement. Um, and sometimes I think we can even recite it without recognizing its profundity um, and what it means, especially when we come across times where our circumstance may tell us otherwise. And we might be tempted to believe otherwise regarding that statement that God is good all the time. All the time that he's good. And it's quite fitting <clears throat> in this letter as Peter uh, spent this letter kind of going through some tough stuff. As a matter of fact, the letter is sent um, as an encouragement to believers who are going through tough circumstances in their lives. Um, I think the culmination of the tough circumstance in a believer's life is persecution. I think every form of discomfort um, it's probably a derivative of the culmination of someone wanting to kill you. <laughs> I, can, uh, I think that's where it reaches its maximum point. Um, and so Peter sends this encouraging letter to be a reminder to the believers dispersed apart being persecuted. Um, and he gives them this reminder to have them remember to live faithfully. To live faithfully. A quick overview of it is that a reminder, um, it's probably not going to go in order on the screen. I'll, I'll go in order on the screen. One, trust the Lord. To trust the Lord. You, difficulty comes and circumstances get hard and you begin to creep in the, the thoughts of, is he actually good? Does he see me? Is he a comforter? Is he a healer? Is he a provider? If I continue on this narrow path, will I be cared for? Because the wider one is looking quite enticing right now. Trust the Lord. Then he exhorts them to live obediently. And this is all throughout the letter. I'm not necessarily going in chronological order of the books, or, I mean the chapters or anything. But this is all throughout the letter. To live obediently. In more difficult times, like submission to authority, something that's closer and closer to taboo in today's society. Just the word authority is taboo. And even as I go on in this sermon, I want to just let you know that I'm going to be using these words as they've been intended, as good. God's instruction to us is good. And I am not going to adopt the abuses of the world and those who aren't faithful to our God 
in a way that they've abused words like rule or authority. I'm going to use them in their good context. To be submissive to the authorities. He highlights the power of marriage in how the submission of a faithful wife can potentially lead a dead man to resurrecting life in Jesus Christ. And conversely, how the lack of faithfulness of a husband can turn away the ear of an all-loving God to his prayer. It's powerful. He gives them this reminder that they are set apart from the world and so therefore to live as set apart from the world, to be holy as the Lord is holy. You are different. You continue to be different, not like the world, but like the Lord, that you belong to him. So live in such a way. And so this set apartness, this obedient living and this trusting of the Lord gets uncomfortable because the whole theme is to do these things no matter what there's no stop point no matter the circumstance no matter what's going on in your life and so I think that this passage is quite fitting now that we've gone through this and we've been we're towards the end now of our series in first Peter and we've heard some encouragements to live in this way that could be difficult and the question is man Peter how do we do this When life is getting difficult, when I feel like I'm alone, when I feel like there's no one to cling to, how do I cling to the Lord? How do I live obediently when there's so much around me that seems more enticing and attractive for me to do? How do I submit to things I don't trust, to things I've been hurt by? And so quite fitting, Peter starts us off with, so I exhort the elders among you. As a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God. As I've just asked them to be reminded of some things that will lead to difficulty. I've just asked them to be reminded of some things that will be easy to forget. I ask them to be reminded of some things that opposing viewpoints will always be in their ear. Therefore, elders, I need to talk to you right now. You need to shepherd the flock and keep them on this narrow path. Local shepherds are temporary rulers set over God's church. I use those words on purpose. They're temporary rulers set over God's church to lead as examples with eagerness, pure motives, with all humility and gentleness, encouraging the flock to respond in the same manner with humble submission as we all await the return of the true shepherd, the chief shepherd, as Peter says, and true ruler, Jesus Christ. This is what I want you to take away from this, that the church, the bride of Christ, She is most beautiful when she is acting in submission to Jesus through leading with gentleness and through submission and humility, all to the praise of God's glory. She's most beautiful when that is happening. And so I want to highlight this profile of elder and shepherd and pastor. They're all interchangeable. 
um, that Peter highlights that God has placed over his church. What is the profile of a faithful shepherd? Then I want to highlight why on earth and how a sheep or a member of the flock can submit to the leadership of an elder with joy. Not just obligation and begrudgingly, but with joy. And then I'm going to circle back, and hopefully you're tracking with me. I'm going to circle back and highlight this profile of an elder in a way that is significant for all of us to understand. Because there's something that I think the bride and the flock have been missing about the significance of what it means to be a shepherd. So, um, track with me in those things and start with point one. The profile of a faithful shepherd. One, the shepherd must know that the flock is entrusted to him rather than given over to him. He's entrusted to him. Peter says in verse 2, shepherd the flock of God. And that's important because oftentimes when we hear the stories, and there are a lot of them today, kind of like boom, 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 popular stories of people who have been entrusted with a flock and they use that authority and that rule as abusive, unfaithfully, forgetting to whom the flock belongs, turning away and as far as their purpose and their role and significance of even being a shepherd in the first place. If a shepherd is to shepherd the flock of God faithfully, he has to remember that he's been entrusted with this flock. That word entrusted is significant. Jesus uses this same language in the parable of the talents in uh, Matthew 25. He gives this parable where the master gives his property to his servants. And he entrusts the servants with his property. Now, a bit of an undertone in that is that the one, if you know the parable, buries what the master gave to him. And there are some components to that. Why would he bury it? Maybe the growth of it and the process that it requires to grow is too difficult. Maybe it's too hard. Maybe the expectation is that he won't be able to do it well. And so I'd rather just give what my master gave me in a nice, safe manner than to go to the toil of what it means to grow it. And a faithful shepherd makes no such decision. A faithful shepherd has been entrusted to the flock and has to have the heart of God to see that flock grow, that he would present it back to his master. So when it comes to the difficult tasks of a shepherd, of a pastor, you can't shrink away Simply maintain the status quo to be safe. The sheep are to grow. That's the point. To shepherd them. Hard conversations, necessary moments of sharing the truth. Discerning and removing those who simply desire to cause harm to the flock. Tough tasks, but necessary tasks. So the faithful shepherd must realize that what's been entrusted to him belongs to the Lord and the expectation is for him to grow them. It's not yours, it's the Lord's. And so if the desire of the shepherd is for the flock to grow, then the shepherd must shepherd faithfully. What does it look like to shepherd faithfully? The shepherd must be called 
pure-hearted, and humbled. Peter goes on, and he says in that same verse, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. That's ruling, rulership. That's literally what it means. Not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. When you, when you read a passage like this, we immediately will have very real experiences, very real stories, very real hurt, very real pain take the place of what's being said here. Those experiences are privation of what's good. It's like when someone starts talking about a car and all you can think about is rust. Why would we read the scriptures and never recognize the beauty of what this is? Of how the bride of Christ is being adorned with these things when they're done faithfully. Doesn't mean to ignore it. Doesn't mean to ignore uh, what's been done incorrectly. But it does mean to exalt this. Exercise oversight willingly. Don't do it under compulsion. The question that comes to mind is, who's called you to this task? I read this and I automatically thought about people I see who've played sports simply because their body made them. Kids who have a certain stature and an adult says, hey, you're going to play some sports. <laughs> we're not we're not. Test one, two. Test, test. Okay, there we go. Um, yeah, it's like, hey, Lord, what is this? Can adjust. Test, test. Say what? Yeah, it is a short. Okay. I'm going to clip it on my pocket, and maybe Bobby can handle it in the background. Um, exercise oversight willingly, not under compulsion. Okay, thank you. Uh, you know what? I'm just going to do it. Test, test. Okay, exercise oversight un not under compulsion but willingly. Who's called you to the task? Uh, is this out of obligation? Do you feel like you've gone in the ministry because you have to? There are a lot of people who don't know what it even means to be called. Um, but even though that's not highlighted in this text, one aspect of what it means to be called to a task is highlighted, and that's willingness, deliberateness. You're willing to do it. The pastor who is unwilling to shepherd will never be willing to shepherd in the difficult times. How many young guys have we seen handed the keys to a ministry because daddy's retiring? And that's the call. And then when difficulty comes, they can't shepherd well. It's not worth it to sit with patience, to sit and hurt with people. It's not worth it to tell someone they may not want to hear and be disliked and slandered. It's not worth it to them. You can't do this under compulsion. Secondly, a way that we can compel or be, feel uh, obligated to do things is by not experiencing the freedom of the gospel by taking our service and exalting it as an idol. Say, I must do this in order for the Lord to love me. And it's not true. 
there is no form of serving you could do to make him love you. And the good news is that there's no form of not serving you could do to make him not love you. Jesus did that for us. And so our service is willingly, deliberate. Exercise oversight willingly. Number two, not for shameful gain. Oh, no, okay. Not for shameful gain. So this is pure-hearted. The question that comes up is, what reward are you seeking? This idea of pure-heartedness is just kingdom language. This is not specific or exclusive to a shepherd. This is Christian. Pure-heartedness means no mixed devotions or loyalty. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the pure in heart. The language there is talking about metals, a pure metal unmixed with any other metal, no alloys. It's pure. Your devotion is to me and me alone. There is nothing else driving you and motivating you in this. A faithful shepherd must be pure-hearted. Obviously, common ways that shepherds are driven is through money. In the social media age and in the technological age, you can see pictures of different ministries and you can see thriving shepherds and, and the way that you measure that is through big groups, big buildings, so many pictures of people serving. And then young guys look at that and say, man, that's what I want. But it's not for shameful gain. Don't seek acceptance. You don't seek fame. You don't stand to be loyal to the culture. And what's waiting for you is an unfading crown of glory given by Jesus himself. That's the reward. Third, not domineering over those in charge, in his charge. He's humbled. The question that comes to mind is, who do you think is really in charge when you're shepherding the flock? Who do you think is really in charge? If a motivation of shepherding the Lord's flock is power, man, you can only cause damage. Shepherds are called to rule over God's flock, and I love saying that because the picture I have in mind when a shepherd is ruling is the model that was set for that shepherd by the chief shepherd, dying sacrificing. That's how Jesus rules his church. Servanthood. Truth. Gentleness. Patience. Long-suffering. And so after this profile that we see of the pastor who is not a uh, domineering over those is not, it doesn't have mixed emotions and uh, is pure hearted and it is also leading willingly. I hope the picture that you're left with is not some docile, weak individual who cowers away and is able to be manipulated by people's dislikes and just does whatever they want. That's not a part of the profile. My God, it can't possibly be a part of the profile of a shepherd. The shepherds in scripture, they could not be docile. They couldn't be uh, cowards. I want to bring up a passage. I want to skip a few because we lost some time because of the mic. But I want to bring up a passage in 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel 17. David, who's making his case 
when he steps forward because God's name is being defamed and the people of God are being threatened. And David steps up and says, I'll, I'll take care of this. My God will not be defamed and his people will not be attacked. And then Saul is looking at his stature and saying, look, man, you just have a sling. I mean, what are you doing here? And David makes his case as far as what he wants to do, not being foreign to him. This is what he says in 1 Samuel 17. He says, your, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. Not his own sheep, his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. That's valuing sheep that have been entrusted to you. And thus is the case for the shepherds of God's church. Beasts and ideologies and thieving philosophies come in to try to capture the sheep and the shepherd will tirelessly tear them down and chase it down to pull any sheep from its grasp. Easton's Bible Dictionary says this about a shepherd. At night, he brought the flock home to the fold, counting them as they passed under the rod at the door to assure himself that none were missing. Nor did his labors always end with sunset. Often, he had to guard the fold through the dark hours from the attack of wild beasts or the wily attempts of the growling thief. The shepherd models Christ. In his call, pure heartedness, gentle humility, and ferocity against darkness, he models Christ. And it was for the flourishing of the church that Christ said to the rulers, authorities, and principalities, the beasts, come and devour me, that my sheep would be spared. The church is most beautiful when the shepherds are shepherding in this manner. And she remains beautiful when the flock submit humbly to their leadership and authority. Next point. Why on earth, with all that we know and all that you've probably been through, all that you've heard, desire to submit to authority? You know what that statement even does to me in my mind? Why on earth would you heed what Peter says when he says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders, subject to if you remember the sermon on wives and husbands, it's the same Greek word, hippotasso. Submit to the elders, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. If you want to submit to your elders with joy, if you want to have joy being led, if you want to know the Lord's pleasure as a sheep, among the flock, and you must desire the flourishing of the bride of Christ. That's what leads to submission. The desire to see the bride of Christ flourish in all her beauty. When you think about what makes the church run, what makes the church what it is, what makes the church flow in love, what makes the machinery work smoothly, it's the oil of submission. That's what it is. 
The splendor of the church is made in the likeness and image of our triune God. That's the beauty of the Trinity. This dance of loving submission. Do not adopt the privation to be a picture of the splendor of the bride. The church, the bride of Christ, is most beautiful when its elders rule with humility and when the flock humbly submit. So this profile of a shepherd, what does it have to do with you? Is this a sermon to elders? It, I mean, in, in a sense, it is. Is it a sermon to shepherds and pastors? 100% it is. But the reason why it's significant for all of us to hear is because our understanding of pastor and elder and shepherd, it comes from this feuding that has existed in the bride of Christ wherever and for very long. Because we both have a very low view of what it means to be a shepherd and pastor and too high a view. Those with too high a view covet the role because their, their motivations are mixed and not pure. Because they strive for some form of power and domineering or whatever it is. They desire to be seen no matter who you are. But there's something we need to know about what it means to be a shepherd and a, a shepherd, a pastor. The word exists in the Greek both as a noun and a verb. The nouns exist because the offices exist. The offices exist because the Lord has instituted them for his church to shepherd his flock. The nouns exist because the chief shepherd models for the shepherds of the church. And the shepherds of the church model for you. Kingdom of priests priestly shepherds and pastors, shepherding, doing, acting to the goodness and glorious grace of our Lord. But we don't find joy in that. We don't even see ourselves as shepherding and pastoring. Husbands and fathers shepherding their families, mothers shepherding children, spiritual mothers shepherding children they didn't bear, uh, give birth to. First service, it's nothing but shepherds downstairs. Neighbors shepherding as communities. My mother my entire life has served as a pastor And not one time did anyone refer to her as one. And not one time did she ever desire to be referred to as one. She found joy in doing it as a daycare provider. You hear that and you say, no, that's not a pastor. The pastor is a guy that stands in front. No! To pastor is a verb and to do, to shepherd. There's beauty in that. The bride of Christ is beautiful in that way. As she shepherds these kids in the knowledge of the Lord and she's pointing parents to Jesus. Single mothers who are broken and battered and don't know the Lord's love. And we all do it in a specific context. And we must find joy in that. We must find joy in it.
Be reminded that Jesus is our chief shepherd who has made through his blood the church. And we must desire her flourishing. The ideas we have about what it means to be led and to submit, those types of things are what make up the adorning dress the bride of Christ is born to be wearing when people marvel at her being presented to her groom. The dress won't be marred and torn with stains of abusive leadership and people who have fallen away. At that time, that is not what defines the church. She's beautiful. And we must desire her flourishing to see this picture play out. Spouses, fathers, mothers, community leaders. Peter says at the top of this, shepherd the flock among you. Shepherd them, your children, community leaders. I know what it's like to be a community leader. My first stint here at the well, me and my wife were community leaders. It can feel lonely. It can feel burning. A 3D leader. People aren't showing up. You can get discouraged. Who's there? Shepherd them. Not to forget or cast away those who aren't there, but if you aren't finding joy in shepherding those who are there, you're just willingly letting your joy be robbed from you. Shepherd the ones among you. This is what we're reminded of each week when we take communion, that the chief shepherd in Jesus Christ ran down the rebellious sheep. That's why his love is so great. We weren't lost trying to find our way home. We didn't want to be there. The flock saw the beasts and the wily thieves, and we found them attractive. We saw idolatry and money and self-centeredness and sexual immorality and hatred and pride and covetousness. And we saw them as attractive. We looked at the beasts and we said, well, maybe I can tame it and make it a pet of mine and it can stay with me and we can cuddle. Not knowing that it seeks to devour us. But Jesus, what he did is he chased us down and tore us out of the mouths of those beasts and said, devour me. Take me instead. And those who trust in him have been forever removed from the mouth of any beast. His body was torn down and devoured that ours would not be devoured. And then what he also did with his blood is he cleansed us eternally for those who trust in Jesus Christ, making them righteous, purchasing them, that they would be his bride. And so now before you take communion, spend some time with him in reflection, having him seek your heart and be reminded that your chief shepherd has placed on himself the culmination of what any beast could ever do, making us eternally secure. Death is the final result. 
He took it and he rose again from the dead. Now we don't fear it. But now even in those moments when we're enticed in those difficult times and we look at the narrow path and then we look at the wide path and we say, man, that actually seems more attractive. I want to walk there. If you're in Christ, you can go to him boldly and confess, knowing that you are his forever. And his forgiveness has been granted to you through the pouring of his blood that cleanses us. So spend time and remember those things. And in your own time, take and drink.